Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thanks for joining us here on this adventure in our summer holiday, Joshua. Summer holiday? Yeah, uh, yesterday was my birthday, so Hooray! that's pretty cool. And prior, to, and prior to that was Canada Day here, so... Mm-hmm. Bang, bang. Bang, bang, yeah. Now I understand, mostly on Canada Day, where I live here in, in, in Ottawa, mm-hmm. uh, Canada Day is usually rained out up until like the late afternoon... And that's really what happened. Uh, we got showers mostly all day, but then it got apparently really hot. I was mm. inside air conditioning, so I didn't really pay attention to that. Of yeah. course, but you were working. Um, I was working till I was working till a certain hour, and then afterwards, I went over to a friend's place for mild Canada Day celebration, some board games, you know, mm-hmm. uh, really athletic sportsman stuff. <laughs> um, sorry, Barney Quill, but I think I got you beat there. But then uh, again, I don't want to. I don't think I want to compare myself to Barney Quill, so that's, nah, we'll just leave that be. Think you should. No. Yeah. Yeah. On the birthday note, you also you also got me a birthday present. And yes, of course, I. Yeah. That was four novels, which we're going to be featuring in the show down the road. So yeah. we're not going to say which ones. Uh, so they're really interesting choices, not surprising choices as well. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's it'll, it'll be fun. I think we yeah, got a good selection I- there to uh, beef up the show for sure. And I've never read any of them either. So we go into it blind and we go into it exciting. But it is part of our mission statement First. to read to read new stories and uh, bring mm-hmm. lighting the pipes into kind of new ter- new terrain. And I think I've done that with these uh, these little birthday gifts to you. Plus, it was fun, you know, to kind of get back into the swing of packaging something up and going to the post office and sending it away. We don't do that. We don't do that enough anymore, people, do we? Yeah. And you said that you got some, like, or some of them anyways, in a quaint little Liverpool uh, bookstore. Yeah, it was cool. I was down there with my wife, uh, had a little visit, and saw a great, great store. What's the name of the store? Mm, Pass. Don't know. Can't remember. (coughs) Sorry about that. But, uh, yeah, maybe what we'll do, maybe when we do the first one, uh, we can talk about that. And by that time, I'll have figured it out, which one it is, so that we can give it a plug. Give give it a plug, for sure. Right. Well, let's bring it back. Yeah, everybody, thank you very much for joining us here on Lighten the Pipes. We are looking at Robert Traver's bestseller, The Anatomy of a Murder, today. I'm always tempted to say The Anatomy of a Murder, but it isn't. It's just Anatomy of a Murder. Anatomy of a Murder. Mm-hmm. A very famous cover, um, I think popularized uh, in further printings by Saul Bass's titles for the film, really. But um, Great Saul Bass. Yeah. yeah, I think we're using the same copy for a change, Josh, aren't we? Yeah, I got mine off eBay, uh, mm-hmm. this particular ed- edition, and yeah. It's yeah, exactly St. Martin's right. Griffin, New York publication. Yep, the same one we've yeah. got. So, Large paper, it's like large print size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's lovely. Uh, and it's got, of course, that Saul Bass film cover sort of on it, doesn't it? That's right. Anyway, it's been a little while since we've had a show. Um, the last episode that we brought you was... Quantum of Solace. The last uh, last short read we had was a resurrected episode on an Ian Fleming short story, Quantum of Solace. That's we right. hope hope you enjoyed that. It was a short episode, but good fun. And then prior to that, we had our first of our LTP noir. We ha- we uh, that's right. Introduced yeah. the world. I introduced the world of mm-hmm. uh, noir to the novice who's not too familiar with it or wants to know more about it and talked about the history and and kind of that that led me into a little review of the Maltese Falcon Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm working on the next one Um, I'm not going to say which movie yet but uh, it's a well-known noir if you know your if you know that era 
pretty well. This is a movie that actually Scott recommended to me a long time ago. I did, and I yeah. finally got to see it because of this project. And uh, it's probably one of my favorite films. Like, mm-hmm. it's excellent. And um, Well, without revealing the title, might we reveal the director and suggest a little link? Or is that too close? Yeah. <laughs> so, the adapti- so the director that adapted um, this film, uh, sorry, this book, Anatomy of a Murder, mm-hmm. is the same director that helmed the film I'll be talking about on the next uh, Lighting the Pipes Noir. So see if you can guess what that might be. Uh, It's not the Apple Dumpling Gang, is it? No, that was much, much past the era that I'm covering. Much, much It's a shame, though. I think the world needs more dumb knots. Yeah. Now, if you could take the Apple Dumpling Gang, make it black and white, and use, like, you know, low-key lighting and shadowing and introduce, like, a femme fatale into the Apple mm-hmm. Dumpling Gang, as well as some sort of, like, you know, murdering someone's husband and police corruption, I think maybe <laughs> you might have something there. What's going yeah. down in the... What was the name of the town in the Apple Dumpling Dude, Gang? I, 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 remember. I just remember... I guess it's just, like, anywhere <laughs> America, I suppose, uh, <laughs> yeah, circa, 18, six, <laughs> circa 1872 or something like that. I have no idea what the context is. Yeah. Does yeah. Davy Crockett show up in that too? It's one of those Disney ones, right? So Totally. Yeah, there's a couple of them actually. There's like The Return or something. But uh, yeah, it was pre-Andy Griffith, but it feels awful lot like that. <laughs> the precursor to Andy Griffith show. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Speaking of Matt, Andy Griffith, speaking mm. of lawyers, uh, mm-hmm. Matlock, mm-hmm. that's a good uh, segue into Anatomy of a Murder because... <laughs> it's a tortured segue, but it's a necessary it's a- one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I had to definitely uh, get new tires after that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you peeled the, peeled the rubber. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I do appreciate the efforts there. You're absolutely right. It's time for us to get into this. Once again, everybody, thanks for joining us. We hope uh, we hope you enjoy this. We're going to go through some fast facts about the book, its publication, and of course, the author, Robert Traver. And then we're going to get into a summary that Josh has prepared for us, which will take you through the strokes of Traver's book. And then, of course, as always, we'll get over to lighting our pipes and tell you our thoughts on the major categories. But right now, let's slide over to some fast facts. All right, so... Robert Traver is actually a pen name uh, for John D. Volker. Now, Volker was a lawyer and a writer and a fisherman who was born in 1903 in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan at a place called Ishpeming. And he died there, the same place, 1991. Now, he did travel for his work. He did have a career that took him around, including the Supreme Court of Michigan. But... I think there was always that sort of home body magnet, you know, built within him that he, he liked being where he grew up. He loved the lifestyle of the outdoorsman, and he really threw himself into that. Now, Volkler had a storied career in law, as well as local and state politics, started writing in his 30s and found solace there, but not much profit, really. He, he seemed to have uh, an enthusiasm for it and felt it quite cathartic and creative without the need for chasing dollars. And I think that reflects a lot, not just of uh, the character um, that we get in the book, that sort of balance of personal life and kind of um, uh, pressure release 
and professional, you know, commitment. But also, I think it says something about the personality of the towns and people that you get in the story and in the north of Michigan. It, it feels very real, Volker's life, you know. And I, I quite appreciated that coming into this. Um, in 1956, he served as a justice on the, machine, uh, on the Michigan Supreme Court and uh, stepped down again in 1960. Now, he went to that post after a nomination from Gerhard Williams, who might be better known, Josh, as a member of um, Lyndon B. Johnson and before that, JFK's presidency. Um, I think it was a... You can, you can fact check this one for me, but I think Gerhard Williams was uh, an associate representative for African affairs or something of that nature anyway. Uh, worked with JFK and Lyndon B. in those two administrations. As I've already said, uh, Volker was an avid fly fisherman. He did a lot of writing, nonfiction and short story writing built around the world of the outdoor activity, fly casting on and around the Upper Peninsula and its waterways. After the success of Anatomy of a Murder, he retired from court full time in order to write. He was making a modest, but not an extortionate amount from his royalties on the book. About 100000 or so is, uh, is what the figure is that I found. Uh, by all accounts, he was a successful writer by accident. You know, I mean, he clearly has talent and we'll get into that. But this is the book. This is, yeah, this is, the, this is the book that he's best remembered for. Um, and he didn't really put out a lot of novels. He, he seemed to write for his own pleasure instead of the market. And I think that's really admirable. You know, again, it comes back to what I was saying about the character of um, the character of Beagler, the character perhaps of the Northern Michigan citizen. I mean, I, you know, the, the simple life. I, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it or if I'm sort of romanticizing it. Uh, but there is something here of Walden. You know what I mean? Sort of like that bucolic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And remember sure. too that this is a this area is kind of on it on both on either sides. You have on one side on one side, I guess to the to the west of of the Upper Peninsula, you have Superior Lake Superior, mm-hmm. and on the other side you have uh, Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, so it, you know, just by that geography alone. It shapes you know the people that live in that re- in that region iron bay cliffs county and all that stuff yeah yeah for sure um this is also hemingway territory um you know he, mm. he had a cottage up at uh, uh walloon lake as a young boy his dad his family did um just out by horton's bay and he spent his summers up there fishing and shooting and there's a lot of uh hemingway's early writings are, are based up on the peninsula and you know, I um, I have a certain affinity for that, too, for the early writings of Hemingway. So th- this is an environment I'm really happy and comfortable settling in, you know, fire mm-hmm, out, mm-hmm. you know, with the fire crackling, uh, beer in your hand and a big Anirondack chair leaning back, you know. In fact, you don't even have to lean back. You can just sit on a stool or a stump, you know, and, and enjoy the, the heat from the fire and the loons on the lake. You know, I, I, I like this environment quite a bit. And it's it's pleasing for me as a reader to be there. Um, but the story itself does have uh, anatomy of murder. The story itself does have quite a, a dark uh, crime at the center of it. And although Traver, it Josh, does. Josh has, he's always he's always stated that this story is pure fiction. Um, 
I presume he said this with a twinkle in his eye, because it sure did draw a lot on a local murder case from the early 50s, which captured local attentions, <laughs> and obviously his. Why? Well, because he was a defense attorney who led the defense. So this crime I speak of occurred on July 31st, 1952, uh, in Big Bay, Michigan. A man by the name of Coleman Peterson shot and killed Maurice Chenoweth after Chenoweth raped and assaulted Charlotte Peterson. John Volker, as I said, was the lawyer who defended Peterson, and he used the precedent of irresistible impulse and a plea of temporary insanity. The trial lasted eight days. Two days after the trial, a psychologist deemed Peterson completely sane, so he was able to be released. He and his wife fled the area without paying his legal fees, and they soon after divorced. Peterson eventually was killed in a plane crash in Alaska before any discussions of the book or the movie took place. Now, something I found online, July 29th, 2008, okay, an archivist at the Northern Michigan University named Marcus Robbins interviewed a gentleman named Max Mule. And now Max Mule was the last living juror of the actual trial in Big Bay, Michigan, or of the Big Bay crime. One of the things that Mule purports is that Chenelworth was so disliked in the town that there was a sense of relief about his death, you know? Now, Chenelworth was a police officer who had before been accused of and suspected of rape, but got out from under the gavel time and time again. So I think when this trial came up, um, yeah, sure, they might not have been looking at Coleman Peterson as a hero, but there were some people in the community were kind of quietly pleased, you know, that, uh, that he was... Yeah. Someone had to put the rabid dog down, you know, I guess that kind of attitude. Yeah, that's kind of what I sense. You can get that uh, interview online, by the way, Marcus Robbins, just uh, type in, uh, I believe the website I found was Anatomy of Murder, Anatomy of a Murder at 50 or the 50th anniversary of it or, or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the archivist's name again, Northern Michigan University is Mar Marcus Robbins. That's Robbins with a Y. Anyway, check that website out. Check, and you can listen to the uh, the interview. It's about uh, about an hour, I guess. It was really interesting, but not like not not for the I won't say not for the faint of heart. It's a juror talking about a case that's very you know very popularized. So there's not a lot of facts or details that are you know disclosed that will shock you. But sometimes the conversation on Mueller's part. I felt it to be a little bit um, casual in talking about rape. Now, maybe that's a product of his time, you know, an older gent, an older gentleman. He was 20 when the uh, the trial was on, so he'd be about you know, 90, 92 yeah. now if, if he's still alive. So there might be there might be a little bit of that. I just I just found that while so, he wasn't well, trying to be disrespectful, for those yeah, modern yeah, context, yeah, I think so. But I mean, you know, caveat emptor, right? I mean, listener beware. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's just some fast facts. Uh, this book is based on a real murder case, and Volker was indeed, or and Traver was indeed uh, an actual lawyer by the name of John D. Volker. Lots more information online, guys. You can go check that out. But uh, the fast facts is all about fast facts. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of intro before we get on to a summary. And just speaking about your fast facts, just wanted mm -hmm. to confirm mm -hmm. something for you. You were very close. So Gerhard Menon, Soapy Williams. Soapy uh, Williams, was in, okay. Soapy Williams, yeah. He served as the 41st governor of Michigan. He was elected mm -hmm. in 1948, and he served, and he, and he served uh, six two-year terms in office. 
And he served, and you were very right on the nose, he later served as the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. Secretary. Under Kennedy. Right. Okay. Assistant Secretary of State. Right. Yeah. Under Presidents uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson. And then, of course, he was a Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. Mm. Okay. It was in, near, uh, near the end of his career. Cool. Nice yeah. one. Thank, thank so you for that fact you were, check. You, you, were, you were close there. Mm-hmm. And I guess, Josh, just before we do segue over into your summary, one last thing mm-hmm. to say about this is one of the reasons why Anatomy of a Murder has maintained such a hold, I suppose, in literary history, crime literary history, is because it's regarded as the first of its kind, a courtroom thriller, you know, which is a genre that would later become popularized by the John Grishams of the world, you know. Here we've got yep. the very first American incarnation of it. Yeah, that's yeah. So this is actually a seminal text mm-hmm. in the mystery mm-hmm. novel crime genre. Yeah, and also too, uh, in terms now as a preface, we all know that there is you know there's Otto Preminger's 1959 film with Jimmy Stewart. I have not seen it yet, so I'm going into this blind without any sort of corruption, I suppose, from the film version. So when I went into the novel, that was there, so I was able to really you know drink in all the details without having to compare it to anything, right? So. I, I, so I plan to watch the movie uh, after this podcast and, and uh, nice see one. how it compares. And maybe we can throw some notes on there, or maybe I can even include it on LTP Noir sometime, possibly. Yeah. Well, Although I have to consider it's Noir qualifications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I, yeah. yeah. I think it would be disappointing if you're looking yeah. at it through, I, uh, through a Noir filter. I don't think you're going to catch much fish. <laughs> but, yeah. You know. but, but if I'm talking about Preminger, I can always you know, yes. drop a line yeah. or two on it. Totally. You know what I mean? Because one thing about Otto Preminger is that he was known, even when he was doing theater in Germany, he was known for being provocative, like talking about politics, talking about, uh, sorry, Austria and Germany, talking about politics as leftist, even in a time where the right was definitely on the rise, and then also dealing with, you know, sexuality, uh, going outside the religious norms people were familiar with. He was always pushing the envelope. And one thing that Anatomy of a Murder, the film version did, I guess, assume, I guess not, I mean, the book, I know there's been novels published before that get into, like, sexuality a lot more explicitly than this movie, than, than, than this book did. But the movie itself, like, used, used words like, sperm and uh that's right yeah vaginal you know vaginal and this was they had to fight to get that into past the censors you know Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it worked um but still so again groundbreaking book groundbreaking movie so Mm -hmm. uh but we discussed the case which robert travers says you know this is not based on um you know as you said with a twinkle in his eye Mm -hmm. and now uh what i can do here is i'll just lay out the uh the summary and does it kind of compare to what Scott talked about in the fast facts regarding the case or what you might go read up about it? Does it differ incredibly? I mean, as a lawyer, Volker slash Travers, he has to positively say that this is a work of fiction, right? Otherwise, I mean, he's very aware of the legal ramifications if he does not. So it's kind of funny that he has to play lawyer even in terms of his own book. You know (laughs) what I mean? That's right. Yeah. 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 He's not, he's not allowed to say that. But he rolled those dice, so. <laughs> he did, he did, yeah. And yeah. it's it's time now that we uh, we crack on with it. So looking forward to your summary, uh, everybody. This is uh, Josh taking us through the strokes of Anatomy of a Murder. Robert.
Robert Traver's Anatomy of a Murder takes us to Iron Cliffs County, Michigan, circa the 1950s, in what is called the Upper Peninsula region of that great state. On a hot August evening in the township of Thunder Bay, the proprietor of the Thunder Bay Inn, Barney Quill, is shot dead in his bar by Lieutenant Frederick Mannion of the United States Army. It is apparently a revenge killing. For less than an hour prior to the murder, Quill allegedly assaulted and raped Mannion's wife, Laura. The case falls into the lap of the county's former DA, Paul Beegler, who has just been trounced in a recent election by the incumbent Mitch Lodwick. Polly was 4F on account of scarring on his lungs and could not serve in the Second World War or the Korean War, whereas Lodwick was a war hero. So too was Lieutenant Mannion, but as we know, that won't stop the book being thrown at him. Beagler appears to have altruistic ambitions for the governor's seat, but for now perseveres sluggishly to that goal as a defense attorney. He has partnered with the second-generation Irishman, Parnell McCarthy, who is quite eloquent and sharp when he is sober, and then Maida, his sassy secretary, who has a penchant for Mickey Spillane. The Manning case seems pretty cut and dry, but Beagler hearing about the affair returning from a fishing trip late that evening and then returning a message left by the aforesaid Laura Mannion, heads to the county seat, Iron Bay. Here, he will meet his prospective client. Going into the jail, Beagler only knows the basics. Laura Mannion arrived at her trailer in hysterics and told her husband that she had been raped by Barney Quill. Mannion calmed her down and put her to bed in a short span, armed himself with his Luger pistol, and headed to the inn where he killed Quill and then returned to the trailer park and turned himself in to George Lemon, the park operator who is also a deputized sheriff. Some probing talk shop with the Swedish county jailer Sulo provides Beagler with further intel that Laura Mannion was examined by a medical officer and passed a lie detector test. This provides support to the fact that she had been raped by the victim. This is also confirmed by Sheriff Battisfori shortly after. Mannion is a prickly interview. He is all about the written law versus the unwritten law, wherein he is innocent under the eyes of natural justice as a husband avenging the violation of his wife. But Beagler reminds him adamantly that this is not the case, especially since the killing was done after he had learned of his wife's attack, giving him time to gather his senses and his thoughts and contact the police. It suggests premeditation and therefore first-degree murder. What is worse for his case is that he told George Lemon that he believes he had just killed the victim. So an informal confession, and on top of that, Mannion reveals to Beagler that he can't pay him at the moment, but will be able to raise the money afterwards. So the only silver lining Beagler is able to discern is that Mannion cannot remember committing the murder, as if he blacked out between the time he left the trailer and surrendered himself. Beagler sees the possibility of pleading insanity, but he is still reticent to accept the case. Interviewing Laura Mannion, who Travers, via Beagler, straightforwardly depicts as a beautiful woman, complete with a bonnet and sunglasses and a little terrier with a more than a confident stride, she is a woman who knows her effect on men. Psychologically, to this modern reader, she's holding up well since the assault, but we never get access to her point of view on things, at least beyond her harrowing testimony. Lieutenant Mannion returned late from work that night of the murder and went to bed early to Laura's chagrin. We know from hearsay about Mannion that he was jealous of his wife when it came to other men around her, even to the point of Mannion suspecting Beagler of inappropriate behavior to Laura. And Beagler confirms this by meeting her in his car in the jail parking lot, where her husband can plainly see them from the window of his cell, seemingly seething with jealousy. 
But continuing with the testimony, we learn Laura was restless after Mannion, or Manny, went to bed and took Rover, the terrier, outside and walked down the road into town where she tied Rover up and decided to have a few drinks at the bar of the Thunder Bay Inn. She mostly kept to herself, partaking in a few beers and playing pinball, until Barney Quill, who acted as the perfect gentleman, joined her in her drinking as they took turns at the pinball. When it grew late, Laura left the bar, and as she untied her dog, was approached by Quill for a ride home, professing that it wasn't safe walking home at night with what the reports of bears being about. My dear, there are worse things than bears about that evening. So she accepted, and when they reached the gate of the trailer park entrance, they saw that it was closed. She said she can get out right here and figure out a way in. After all, Rover, with his flashlight between his little jaws, would guide her home, but Barney insisted there was another way further down the road that would allow her to get into the park, so she agreed. They say chivalry isn't dead, and in most cases it isn't, but in this case, it was as dead as Barney Quill. Quill suddenly turned off the road, and Laura relates all the grisly details of her terrible violation. She then goes on to explain how Quill attempted to rape her a second time, but she, with the help of Rover and a little flashlight, escaped the car, and Quill, via a break in the fence, near the gate. Upon hearing all of this, Bigler arranges to have the local obstetrician to examine her, and discusses with Parnell the prospects of the case. There is no doubt that the courtroom would be sympathetic to Mannion's situation, but the state prosecutors would do everything possible to keep the rape on the down low. Another detriment is that upon examining his wife, Mannion cleaned Quill's ejaculate off her thighs, therefore providing ammunition to the prosecution on the legitimacy of her testimony. He then visits Lieutenant Mannion, and they elaborate further on his state of mind, where the lieutenant determines that it was not his intention to kill Barney Quill, but to grab hold of him and wait for the police. His words. Bigler wagers that if they can get a psychologist to confirm a temporary insanity seizing Mannion after hearing what Quill had done to his wife up until returning from the inn after shooting Quill, then they have a case for not guilty by reason of insanity. He accepts the case and registers with D.A. Lodwick that they are pleading insanity for the defense. Hopefully the Mannions can raise the money. What follows is a day trip for Beagler and his legal team. They drive to Thunder Bay and initiate a sort of reconnaissance for the defense. Maida gleans useful gossip at the town salon. Parnell hits the bars and taverns of the township slash outdoor sportsman tourist trap while Beagler visits the scene of the crime, the cocktail lounge at the Thunder Bay Inn. Quill's manager and business partner, Mary Pallant, has made herself more than comfortable with her expanded responsibilities and that includes ensuring the staff keep mum on Quill's case. In the cocktail room downstairs, Bigler finds it unsurprisingly empty in the mid-morning. He surveys the bar, in front and behind, where the bullet holes are lodged and the, and the spot on the floor where Quill squirmed his last. He surveys the bar in front and behind, sees the bullet holes, and then the spot on the floor where Quill squirmed his last. Quite visible from behind the bar are various hidden slots which could easily fit a pistol. Just near Quill was standing, actually. Bigler notes this himself. Bigler notes this as the bartender, the surly and tight-lipped Alphonse Paquette, enters the bar. Tight-lipped is an understatement. While it's obvious Palant is keeping her employees discreet on this case for some purpose, Paquette is very reticent in answering Bigler's inquiries. What Bigler is able to gather is that just after midnight, Quill returned from wherever it was he went to, mm-hmm, and relieved Paquette from his duties and tended the bar himself, giving free beers and shots to his patrons. Paquette joined a crowd at a table near the window which gave him a good view if someone were about to enter the hotel. 
with Paquette as a possible lookout and Manny behind the bar with possible concealed pistols, the story of what really happened is starting to take shape. Quill was expecting Lieutenant Mannion to show up. Paquette lauds Barney's character and explains in brief that he didn't see exactly when Mannion fired his shots at Quill, but when it happened, Paquette went after him outside, to which Mannion confronted the barkeep with a menacing, you want some too, buster, or something along those lines. The word buster was used menacingly, though. Bigler continues to prod and poke, but Paquette soon hushes up and accepts his fate of having to deal with Bigler in court. A delay not a stay of execution, if you will. Beagler, Parnell, and Maida meet for lunch at Thunder Bay Inn's restaurant and share their discoveries. Parnell regales them with tales of Barney as the superior outdoorsman who will take on any tough that comes into town and loudly proclaims so to all and sundry. Also, he is a braggart and an expert pistol marksman. This reminds Beagler of Laura Mannion's testimony, of which during the assault she warned him not to continue because Manny would kill him if he ever found out, to which Quill retorted with a cackle that he could take Manny on with the pistol any day of the week, leaving Beagler to wonder who removed the pistols behind the bar from their well-placed hidden racks. My guess is on Paquette. Just saying. Maida confirms from the salon girls that Quill co-owns the inn with Mary Pallant, their hostess, and Barney Quill had his eyes on Mary for quite some time, but until recently, Mary preferred the company of one of the local soldiers. The next obstacle for Team Beagler is to set the foundations for the plea of temporary insanity in the state of Michigan. But per the arrangements with Lodwick, the trial will be starting in a matter of weeks and time is running out. The usual judge Maitland is ill, and a Judge Weaver has been summoned from down south to handle the proceedings. To add insult to injury, the U.S. Army is proving difficult to get a hold of, and as the trial grows closer, it's only at the last minute that they get an interview with an Army shrink named Matthew Smith. Only Dr. Smith is at the Bellevue Army Hospital near Detroit, and that will require some finesse to get Lieutenant Mannion out of prison, as well as an escort to drive him there and back. Judge Weaver is amiable, however, and sanctions the interview. Parnell, meanwhile, drops another bomb when he is able to suss out Barney Quill's last will and testament from an estate's lawyer friend of his. First, we learn that Quill is divorced with a teenage daughter, his named heir, and that he has bequeathed his entire estate to Mary Pallant. Pallant appears to have big stakes in the outcome of the trial, and her keeping the employees' mouths tight in regard to the case, as well as producing Alphonse Paquette as a star witness, has deeper meaning now in regard to the will. Lieutenant Mannion barely makes it to the pretrial, but from his interview with Dr. Smith, he confirms to Beagler the idea of irresistible impulse, indicating that he was overcome with a mental state of which he was not in control of his actions. This is concerning because it does not establish insanity, and furthermore, does not discern whether Mannion was aware of right from wrong, and many states would not consider this insanity. The case is hanging by a thread from oblivion, but a dogged exploration of Supreme Court cases in the state of Michigan located precedent for it from 1886. The strategy is secure for the defense, and Beagler writes up an argument to this defense to present to Judge Weaver. Weaver admits being a big fan of murder trials and the whole sensationalist aspect of them. Mostly, he is just chuffed to be taking part in history. And make no mistake, though this is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in the mid-1950s, the trial has now generated a Hollywood-sized buzz about it, at least in terms of Ironcliffs County. But statewide, it has become somewhat of a celebrity case, and therefore one Claude Dancer has come from upstate, dispatched from Lansing, to serve with Lodwick for the district attorney's office. And so, the trial. The first witness is Dr. Ratched, the medical examiner. 
He confirms the cause of death that Quill was shot through the heart and lung as well as in the abdomen. Bigler is able to draw out that spermatogenesis occurred prior to the time of death, indicating that Quill had been sexually active and may have reached climax. He intimates that the police asked him to confirm this in his report as well and that the state wished to keep this out of the trial, as it supports Mannion's defense. Dancer objects, and not for the last time, on the grounds that this has nothing to do with the trial, but Beagler argues, not for the last time, because it was in the coroner's report, who is present on the witness stand and is therefore admissible in court. Sustain, Weaver judges, a phrase along with that of overrule that he would be using many times that day and the near future. The next witness is a commercial photographer who was hired to take pictures of the crime scene as well as Mrs. Mannion's injuries. This is revealed as yet another example of the state suppressing evidence of the rape as Beagler confirms from the photographer that the pictures quote-unquote turned out fine and that A, they helped corroborate Laura's testimony and B, he never brought them with him to the trial because he was requested not to. Dancer objects to this, of course, making it known that this has no bearing on the charges against the defendant. With the physical evidence of the murder established, the state brings in an assortment of eyewitnesses. Yates, the game warden and bar regular, heard the first gunshots and turned around just in time to see Lieutenant Mannion fire a few more over the railing next to the waitress serving station behind the bar. Beagler's cross-examination determines to the court that upon his return and taking over the bar from Paquette, Quill was a jolly and generous host, giving Yates and others drinks on the house. Yates, conform Yates confirms Paquette was standing near a table by the door with a view through the window, of course, and that after his last shots, Manning walked out as calmly as a mailman delivering a letter. With the mailman line cementing the coldness of the act dealing its blow to the defense, Beagler asks Yates to describe Quill's disposition, in which Yates describes as very calm. Dancer is nearly gleeful as the defense's rape strategy is wounded at this point, and until Beagler intimates that if this were a trial of the state versus Barney Quill on the charges of rape, would he report the same countenance from the victim? The prosecution nearly has an apoplexy in response. It's a gamble, and a fair-minded, affable weaver, who at the start of the trial told the courtroom audience of gawkers and mystery fanboys and fangirls to show respect, instantly calls Beagler out on it. Weaver orders the remark to be stricken from the record and the jury to ignore, but Beagler has now brought the rape into the proceedings, and the inkling that the prosecution is doing all they can to keep it out of the proceedings. More witnesses follow. One is DeLaf Peterson, who was seated at the table near the window to confirm the shooting, but aids the defense during cross-examination with the fact that during their conversation with Paquette, then temporarily suspended of his bar duties, they offered him to join his party, but he chose to stand as he was on the lookout for a friend coming to the hotel. A friend. More importantly, Paquette stood for at least a half hour as he discussed everyday things, but more specifically, Barney's recent victory in a pistol marksmanship competition. As for the murder itself, Peterson only heard it and saw Paquette go after Mannion. Peterson didn't overhear anything in particular, at least nothing that sounded like Mannion threatening Paquette. With Bigler's cross-examination of Peterson, the defense has planted the seeds that Quill fortified himself behind the bar and put Paquette on watch duty for the imminent arrival of Lieutenant Mannion. Court is adjourned. Mannion reveals that he forgot to write a letter to the U.S. Army and they are now withholding his pay until he responds. Great. In a meeting with, Ju a meeting with Judge Weaver, Bigler learns that the judge is satisfied with the, the points he presented on the merits of their insanity defense. When the court convenes, Bigler points out a third member of the state's team who was announced by the state as Dr. Harcourt Gregory, the people psychologist who, like Dancer, is also from Lansing. But their star witness is next on the dock, Alphonse Paquette. 
Bigler lays siege to the well-defended ramparts of Paquette's testimony. Dancer Divas lead forces Bigler's cross-examination to bring to light somewhat reluctantly as planned that Paquette identified Mannion outside by calling his name, and Mannion threatened him off, complete with that buster line. Forced into this position, Bigler tries to establish the womanizer aspects of Barney's personality, but Paquette is a sly fox and is supported by a barrage of objections from Dancer. Bigler then protests to the court that the prosecution is using too many people at once, hampering his ability to conduct his defense. Weaver magnanimously establishes that only one state's attorney can handle a single witness at a time during the cross-examination. But the plot soon thickens. Parnell has more information about Barney's estate. This prompts Beagler to contact Mary Pallant and arrange a meeting at the hotel. She is sharing estate with Barney's daughter. She did not believe Barney could do this, but it was more hope towards that he didn't do it because of her and because of Barney's daughter. Barney she saw as a more of a father figure and was never a lover. He was jealous of the men around her. He was a man about town until the army moved in and his bravado soon transitioned into neurotic paranoia and jealousy. He was having issues but would not consult with anyone, only took out two insurance claims for Mary and his daughter. Sparks begin to fly between the lines and Mary is open to hearing more about the rape. The meeting is effective both romantically and legally as Mary calls the next day and confirms she accepts the evidence of the lie detector. The screams from the gate that night and Mr. Lemon's own words. She has also spoken to Paquette. Bigler now has a green light to proceed talking about the guns and more importantly, the rape. The rape issue is served up during Bigler's cross-examination of Detective Durgo, the arresting officer. Durgo was called by George Lemon to hear Mannion's confession and reports that on the way to the state police barracks, Mannion asserted that he believed Quill's fate was, was a just outcome. Bigler is cautious of Durgo as he respects the man greatly and knows him to be an honest cop. Durgo confirms that the Luger pistol was empty due to the mechanism sticking out in the back of after firing the six shots, indicating that the whole magazine was used on Quill. Oh, and Durgo confirms he does know something about pistols, especially being in a contest with Barney Quill himself. Furthermore, Durgo is just as blunt in ensuring the court understands that all the evidence indicates that Laura was indeed raped by Barney Quill and in no way was the police hampering that fact or ignoring it. Despite Dancer's objections and Bigler's negotiations with Weaver to proceed, it all comes out. The screaming at the gate and Mrs. Mannion's torn skirt, her missing panties, all of it. The jury is fully aware that the victim hideously assaulted the accused wife. To show good faith and sweeten the jury, Dancer provides the three photographs taken of Laura Mannion. Bigler fires back by having it admitted as evidence and passed around to the jury. Dancer retaliates by placing Dr. Dompierre, the physician who saw Laura that evening. The vaginal slides he took came back negative for sperm, is his conclusion. Bigler decimates the witness into revealing that the way the slides were taken and the handling of the slides was not up to the standards of a rape case. Following this victory, the state having no further witnesses, rests. Bigler now calls the next witness, and he brings Paquette back to the stand. It's time to talk about the pistols. Paquette is somewhat of a Barney Quill fanboy. His testimony asserts that he would throw stuff up in the air for Barney to shoot. He reveals Quill would keep six guns behind the bar in a special rack so they could be accessed swiftly if trouble came to the bar. But two weeks prior to Quill's death, Mary Pallant had Paquette lock the guns upstairs so that on the night of his murder, he did not have access to a weapon when Mannion showed up. However, two of these guns were unaccounted for. Beagler has Paquette cough up that returning from presumably the rape, Quill was wearing a white t-shirt because it was the middle of August 
and came down to the bar after midnight with a loose, long-sleeved sweater, something he could very easily smuggle the pistols back downstairs in, those two missing pistols. The pistols were put away because of Quill's increased drinking, which was spiraling in the two weeks leading up to his death. Pallant had made Paquette very pliant with the defense, but Beagler continues to pursue the rape with the bartender, referring to the fact that he drove Laura Mannion to Iron Bay to see her husband at the jail a week after the shooting, and that Paquette gave Laura a box of cigarettes meant for Manny. He was feeling sympathetic, apparently, or Beagler stipulates guilty for supporting a character like Quill, especially if he was certain that Barney had raped Laura. Beagler's pliant, or pliant, witness resets back to his tight-lipped self and refuses to play the game in which he would out Barney as a so-called wolf when it came to women. This leaves a gaping hole for Dancer to waltz through and repudiate the defense's rape strategy by having Paquette present a low opinion of Laura Mannion that evening in the bar, for she scandalously took off her shoes to play pinball and was dancing with a man named Hippo Lukes. This was clearly a thread that the state planned to pull with star witness Alphonse Paquette, but Mary Pallant's influence gives Paquette the liberty to say he did not recall such an event, and Dancer finds its particular coup crashing and burning before the stand. The trial reconvenes yet again. One doctor confirms for the defense that prior to making his will, Barney Quill was in the best of health. The other doctor, Trembath, aka the OPGYN that examined Laura a week after the attack, confirms all the physical damage that Quill had brought upon her person. More substantial evidence towards the rape. And now it's time for Laura to take the witness stand. She reports the same account of that awful night to the jury, but with a matter of factness and cognizance that resonates with them and the courtroom audience as a whole. She is almost entranced, recalling the details as if it were yesterday. She confirms everything that has been said by Lemon, Durgo, Ratched, the pictures that were taken, Dompier's examination, and the lie detector test. Beagler then asks Sheriff Batafori to produce the next bit of evidence, mainly Rover the Terrier. With flashlight in his jaws, Beagler sends it home to the jury that this tiny, adorable good boy would provide zero challenge of a man of Quill's peak physicality, and that Rover's proclivity for confusing flashlights for bones illustrates to the court the authenticity of Laura's ordeal, and how indeed Rover led her to safety. It's a joyous respite from the grim proceedings. Rover even pays a visit to Claude Dancer's lap in a happy show of neutrality. Dancer, predictably, pounces on Laura in the cross-examination, trying to dirty her character so that he doesn't have to touch the rape with a ten-foot pole. After exhausting herself with the recount of what happened to her, Laura rolls with the punches throughout the takedown of her character that Dancer unleashes, but she holds her own, admirably, following Bigler's suggestion of telling the truth, both the good and the bad. Captain Matthew Smith arrives via plane. The U.S. head shrink affirms that irresistible impulse connotes dissociative reaction and can be considered a temporary form of insanity. Despite this reinforcement of their case, it will be a challenge to go up against the people psychologist Dr. Gregory with this notion, since majority of the states determine insanity as whether the defense was unable to infer right from wrong. Michigan, as we know, has other ideas, other precedents in mind. Pun absolutely intended. Charles Furlong, the Thunder Bay Inn desk clerk, is up next. He provides support to the defense by establishing Quill returning to the inn panting and disheveled. He headed upstairs and returned ten minutes later, appearing quite calm in his clean clothes and sweater as he tipped Furlong a $20 bill without saying a word. The state has no questions, but perk up when the inevitable occurs. The defense calls Lieutenant Mannion to the stand. Mannion gives his account to the court, going over all the details to ensure the jury understands his state of mind at the time. Mannion is still a prickly subject, confident to the point of hostile of his own bearing, but determined to make his case known. It takes very little coaxing from Beagler to get all this out. 
Dancer attempts to tear down Mannion, and the best way to do this is via the crux of the matter, his anger issues. It has already been pointed out during Laura's testimony that he hit another officer on one occasion, as the man couldn't keep his paws off his wife. He also points to the squad car confession, wherein Mannion admitted he did not regret what he did and that Quill deserved it. Dancer then picks apart the insanity defense, confirming for the courtroom that Mannion was never hospitalized for any sort of neuroses as a result of the war and painting the picture that the exemplary service record is merely that of a bloodthirsty killer, killing even the German soldier which he took to Luger. But what is worse, Dancer attempts to further sabotage the defense by standing in front of Mannion at the witness stand in such a way to obscure Beagler's view from the bench. The aim to get Beagler to move around and triggering Mannion to move his head to give the appearance of the defense leading the witness. Beagler cries bloody murder on Dancer, but Dancer persists with making Mannion the career soldier into a cold-blooded killer, as well as someone who possibly was responsible for the beating that Laura took that night. These reprehensible tactics backfire on Dancer, as his cross-examination falls flat against Mannion's brick wall, and as a veteran crashes the courtroom and pleads for Mannion's release. With the Mannion's testimonies accounted for, the stage for the final battle is set. Beagler calls Dr. Matthew Smith to the witness stand and Smith gives an accurate breakdown of irresistible impulse and dissociative reaction until Dancer cross-examines him and points out that in this hypothetical scenario that the hypothetical Mannion would know the difference between right and wrong, of which Smith admits that is the case, which gives Dancer permission to remind Smith and the jury that knowing the difference between right and wrong is a standard measure of qualifying insanity, but Dancer didn't know about the 1886 president and continues to pull the thread. He ends the cross-examination with Smith confirming that neuroses do not suggest insanity. Smith holds his own, and with no more witnesses to bring forth, at this time, the defense rests. The state then moves in with two final salvos. A shot is fired across the bow when Dr. Harcourt Gregory, the people's shrink, is called to the stand. Harcourt uses long experience with the mentally ill to help Dancer tear down Smith's testimony, especially since what Gregory deemed that the test Mannion was given in the short examination that he could get before his trial are not sufficient to support Smith's conclusions. Things are dire, but Beagler returns fire, indicating that Dr. Gregory has spent most of his career dealing with the criminally insane, but not someone with Mannion's psychological makeup, and worst of all, that Harcourt's assessment without having conducted any tests on the defendant is worthless compared to the data and results accumulated by Smith in the short time he saw Mannion. The arrogant Gregory is humiliated by Beagler, forced to admit that he dismissed his younger colleague's findings because of inexperience, youth, and theory bias without having any data from his own test to support it. It is a victory for the foundation of the defense's case. But Dancer has an ace up his sleeve. He calls a Duke Miller to the stand. Miller is some soon-to-be-convicted arsonist and public menace. He testifies that Mannion told him he was playing everybody for a sap, essentially faking his very defense of insanity, hoodwinking even his own lawyer. He even used the word buster as a term of endearment to Miller. Terrified, Beagler pods at Miller in the cross-examination, but Miller is sticking to his story. Mannion is thrown back on the stand by the defense and swears he never uttered those words to Miller. With that, the state rests. State and defense make their final speeches to the jury, Lodwick first, then Beagler and finally Dancer, with one last opportunity to stick the proverbial knife in. While Lodwick is short and sweet, much like his oratorical presence in the courtroom these past few days, Bigler has the eloquence and wit of a Greek or Roman statesman tying up all the facts and all the instances in which the state conducted by Dancer has gone beyond the pale to keep the rape out of the trial. Dancer concludes, and while not as anecdotal and stirring as Bigler, amidst to no foul play only what was necessary to ensure justice is served and what is at stake is understood by the jury. They are great speeches, 
you should read them in this very good book. With the summations completed, Weaver arraigns the jury and provides them their instructions, including the 17 instructions essay Beagler presented to him in regards to the defense's plea. The jury retires, and then in what seems an eternity, court is reconvened and the jury is called to the bench. The verdict? Not guilty by reason of insanity. All's well that ends well, right? Despite their embittered rivalry in the courtroom, the past week, Bigler and Dancer shake hands, Dancer admitting it was a great fight and probably hiding his bitterness that it will be Bigler headed to the governor's house before himself down the road. Durgo gives Mannion his luger back. What is more, things are looking to be hot and heavy between Bigler and Mary Plant thanks to Parnell and Maida's matchmaking skills. And Parnell seems to have replaced whiskey for orange pop. But what of the Mannions, you ask? Do they drive off into the sunset, vindicated? Laura's brutal attack finally avenged? Lieutenant Mannion, who served his country in two wars, redeemed at last? And can he now pay his attorney for his valiant defense? On that note, it is arranged for Beagler to meet the Mannions in a day or two at the trailer park in Thunder Bay, before they head off to their next adventure. Beagler and Parnell show up only to find George Lemon with a note from the Mannions. Apparently, they left in a hurry. Laura was crying, and Mannion left instructions for Lemon to give to Beagler, but just before hitting the road to destinations unknown. Mannion bestowed Lemon with that friendly tough guy endearment of Buster. Lemon tells Beagler this. It was an irresistible impulse, <laughs> to quote the note, the note that does not contain any form of payment whatsoever. Beagler smokes his cigar. Parnell tells him to head to the inn. Mary is expecting them for dinner. We are left to wonder, do we despise Mannion for pretending he was insane when he killed the arrogant, damaged Barney Quill, or merely that he cheated his champion attorney out of his pay? Oh well, Mary, and presumably the State House, awaits. Life in the Upper Peninsula marches on. Nice work there, Josh. Uh, I, I won't say that was a lighthearted summary, but it certainly did uh, It did add some levity to the story. And, you know, in fairness, you could say that that's something that Traver does himself as well. He adds a lot of levity to this story, a lot of humor, which uh, kind of surprised me. But we'll, we'll get into it because it is our time to light the pipes. Principles, investigation, perpetrator, environs, and secondary or supporting cast, each of which we give a mark of five. If you're a listener to the show, you know it. And we get a total mark out of 25, with which we score the text in question. So, principles, my friend, principles. What did you make mm-hmm. of Paul Beagler in this story? I loved Paul Beagler. I also That's... loved Paul Beagler. He's the type of guy you would yeah. love to hang out with, isn't he? Absolutely. I would just like talking about he, he to me made like the judiciary system. I think he gave me he provided me a, a gateway into it where I can look at it like emotionally and intellectually. It's something, you know, that's always kind of been in the background of my life. You know, it exists for good reasons. I understand mm-hmm. it. But he also really explained to me how lawyers work. He brought humanity to the profession for me that I think that other authors have, what have you. So I found I loved I loved hearing his perspective on the law because it's really interesting. It makes me wonder, you know, if I read like Michael Connolly's Lincoln Lawyer stories, you know, with uh, Mickey Holler, I'm wondering mm-hmm. if I'm going to get that kind of perspective from him mm-hmm. as well, you know. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to to, re- to approach Michael Connolly again in that respect. But we could. back to Polly, though. Yeah. yeah, back to Polly. 
Yeah. Um, the word of the day for Polly to me is uh, erudite, but he's also, you know, he's compassionate. He's a stickler, uh, but he's good at what he does, and he's a professional at the same time. That's right. Yeah. Um, That's like- a really good point. I don't yeah. want you to skip over that because I think you're onto something really important just as we get started here. He does enjoy his reputation. He knows that he's respected and good at what he does, but he doesn't milk or abuse it. He he never does. Like no. he, he takes it. And like, you get the feeling, as, as you're kind of suggesting, I think, that he's earned any of the goodwill that's extended to him in the book. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, even though he lost, you know, the, the election of the d- district attorney to Lodwick, you don't get the impression that he's kind of like a pariah in the town. Not he's just all, out of office yeah. because that's how the democratic system that's how works, works, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how it works. And, you know, and, and he's an advocate of that 100%, 100% as we know. Uh, so, like, you know, he is, like, hiding, I think, deep down uh, a bleeding heart liberal to him. But that's also his political face. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's an ambiguity to how he actually feels about things, even though, like, he espouses to you on the page mm-hmm. through the first-person narration, uh, those feelings. Uh He's, but he is more accustomed to a bucolic sort of life. Mm-hmm. He, but wheels the fires of ambition in him. Like he's happy, you know. Like I think he, you know, I'm sure he had a bit of about a drinking after he lost the, you know, <laughs> with Parnell yeah, after sure. he lost that p- the position in the state, and now he has his own law firm. But still, he's now now like, and he is ambitious deep down because while we know that you know he was reluctant to take the Mannion case. I think he believed in the Mannion case. I think he sympathized with Laura Mannion. I think half of him felt that he was doing the right thing because I think, in a way, he gets duped in the end, even though it's not really a traumatic event for him at the end. Mm-hmm. Like It's yeah. kind of like he just rolls with the punches and smokes a cigar, and, mm-hmm. and that's it because, hey, he's going to the governor's house after this trial, right? That's right. Yeah, totally. So, you know, like there's that ambition in him that he gladly accepts. And while all lawyers, he may believe that Mannion is not innocent, but that's what a defense attorney does. He has to make a strong case, uh, just as the prosecution has to make a strong case, because that is the that is the Western justice system. That's that's a democratic justice system where everyone has to make a good case on both ends because the law is blind, emotion, all this other stuff surrounding it is ephemeral. What mm-hmm. matters is making the case deep down, setting an example for the society. And the morality does not enter into it as much as we wanted to deep down what sense of justice. He knows that and, that, and he conveys that in the character. Mm-hmm. But... He also goes back to his bucolic life, fishing and stuff, and he separates himself from it, but he's also a part of it. Yeah. So he's just another cog in the machine, but uh, like all the cogs in the machine, I think, that are presented in this book, he's a very colorful, vibrant character. Yeah. Uh, he's not He's not a, yeah. a He's not a Byronic hero, and I think that's an important thing. No. Like, like a lot of modern characters in a setting like this would be living, breathing, sleeping, the fear, the anxiety, the ups and downs. And while there's certain elements of that in his personality, what you say is is exactly right. He he takes breaks to clear his mind. He goes fishing and he gets a beer at a bar and he says hi to the locals when he needs to. Like yes, he wants to do the right thing, but he he does yeah. he does separate himself from work and I think that makes him a very balanced figure that you don't always get in this genre where you've got obsession and you've got kind of reasons, motivations that are deep set for doing what you do. This guy is just a hardworking small town guy who likes his job, yeah. the work-life balance. He, he willingly puts stress onto himself because he knows that 
there's a season for it and that it'll go away again. But he he doesn't live the book in this do or die kind of costumery, which you, you do see sometimes, you know, like the outcome here is not, it's not going to change whether or not he buys new fishing tackle next season. Do you know what I mean? And I like that uh, even as this, the tension in the story ramps up, Paul Beegler reminds us through his narration, through the lightheartedness or the sarcasm or the little quips, he reminds us that there's life outside the courtroom and it's just so different, isn't it, to other more intensely drawn and, and kind of squeezed courtroom thrillers. Like yeah. th- this first Genesis tale is really uh, a soft one in that respect. Yeah. Is he, is, is he the prototype, you know, for the Grisham lawyer hero? I really wonder. Like, I don't remember his character in the movie cause, or in the book, but the one that Matthew McConaughey played in um, A Time to Kill, for example. Yeah. The young Southern lawyer type, right? I think, you know, you could argue that Polly Beagler is sort of like the lawyer, the beginning of the lawyer hero that we start to see, you know? And I think a lot of modern mm-hmm. films kind of have that, like, kind of character, a very kind of working man character hero. It's it's, it's a kind of a very almost natural Hitchcock, Hitchcockian hero in a way, too. But you can also compare, you know, for example, and just to go into this, I mean, who's surprised that Jimmy Stewart was cast as his character? Oh, yeah. You know absolutely. what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, like it's tailor made for him, uh-huh. and and if you think of you know Mr. Smith goes to Washington, mm-hmm. very similar, very similar sort of character, yeah, to Polly to Polly Beagler, maybe a little more naive than Polly Beagler, yeah, was, and also a bit more zealous, I think. Yeah, I think what I don't know if you picked this up, and because you know I know we're both into like uh, Roman history, we always have been interested into it. Uh, sorry, interested in it. I found that Beagler was very much uh, a Marcus Tullius Cicero type. Because here is the advocate fighting for democracy and justice and making sure it gets done right. But then he goes up back to, you know, Tusculum and mm-hmm. has his little villa there and enjoys the quiet life, but then comes back and mm-hmm. serves the state. And I, I got kind of, and because you know how, you know, witty and intellectual yeah. Uh, yeah. Polly is, especially in his conversations with like mm-hmm. Parnell, for example, you know, and just, and just how uh, almost avuncular, but at the same time friendly. And so, also stubborn in, in the same way. There's a Cicero vibe I kind of get. Yeah, Paul there is. Beagler. There is. But I'm not yeah. so sure that, that Paul de Beagler would ever compose a Philippic and have someone wanting to chop his head off for things he said in the Senate or the courtroom. I don't know. I think he crucified uh, Barney Quill at that trial. That's for darn sure. Well, okay, fair <laughs> enough. But Barney Quill isn't, and you all- know... Yeah, okay. Maybe, if Barney yeah. Quill was an enemy, if Barney Quill was an enemy of his state who threatened people who to basically took over upper, 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 let's say Barney Quill gained political power in upper in the Upper Peninsula, <laughs> okay, went for right. them and and ended up like going for the governor's state house, and he's basically you know like a Huey Long type character, you know, like the criminal governor type. I would say that Polly Beagler would be the Cicero to his the Antony, Caesar, the I Antony to his Cicero. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Antony absolutely because of the flippics for sure. Just for those who are at home or totally confused right now, uh, just you know, look up Marcus Tullius Cicero or Cicero as he was known, uh, great orator and statesman, legal advocate uh, in the Roman late Roman Republic, uh, enemy of Julius Caesar, and of course Mark Antony, uh, Caesar's successor in the triumvirate, and uh, paid for it with his life in service of the the republican ideals that he was born that he was born into absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah all right well i'll just tell you buddy that uh, paul beagler for me on the page was 
one of the one of one of the funnest characters I've seen in a long time, and I felt that he's great. I felt that the brightness and the the warmth of his character was really refreshing in this genre. And as I said, I mean, we've been looking at crime stories the last few years, and I haven't read one with quite as much humor and not po-faced humor, not dark kind of Marlowean humor, but humor that feels yeah. like it comes from the heart, like. Yes, I, I I don't know. Like he, to me, he like the, I'm just going to read humanity. the humanity. The humanity, yes. There's a, there's a humanity. Yeah. There's a lot of humanist wisdom in here as well. But if I could just share with the listeners and and ourselves, Josh, a section when I think it typifies it when he's looking for um he's looking for his own medical professional and he goes into the doctor's office and th- this is kind of the way the narrative voice observes things and speaks to things for us. Okay. The doctor's office was crowded as usual, and as usual, mostly with glowering and stoically pregnant women who were his specialty. But Doc's receptionist was an understanding woman who seemed to sense that my own pregnancy was more advanced, and in a few minutes I was seated beside the doctor himself, an enormous big hulking field marshal of a man with the gentle, long-suffering mind of an overworked angel. And then as he leaves, then as he leaves the office, he says, The stoically pregnant women seemed to glower harder than ever, as I, the interloping male, one of the hateful, carefree breed responsible for their plight, stole through their swollen ranks and clattered down the stairs. Ah, but they didn't realize all the fine mechanical secrets I now knew about their husbands and lovers. And anyway, I had got my doctor, the one I had wanted, one whose opinions were not for sale to the highest bidder. You know, I just really like the the scene. In fact, the scene with the doctor, I won't read it because it's three or four pages, but great dialogue, mm-hmm. witticisms, real mm-hmm. real nice relationship there. He speaks to him as a townsperson, not just as like a lawyer who needs something. And that's mm-hmm. that sort of warmth, you know, that, that we get there is, um, I, I find it really refreshing. And later in the book, do you remember when he goes to Thunder Bay and he kind of puts, he goes into the Thunder Bay Inn and he's talking at the bar and then... Um, uh, Mary Pallant is away, and he he goes behind the bar, right? This is where he locates the, the gun rack, right? There was a neat small splintered hole near the base of the mirror, about the height, yes, of a man's heart. If this had been caused by one of my man's shots, then at least one of the bottles should have been broken. As I walked out from behind the bar, I felt like Sherlock Holmes and longed for a curved bulldog pipe and one of those fore-and-aft peaked deerstalker's caps. Yes, damn it, and a checkered tattersall vest. Like, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of humor in this book, and, and I found it refreshing. Yeah. Do you think, I think one of the key things about his character, I think, as you said, is the humor, the hu- and we talked about the humanity as well, mm-hmm. is that imagine if this book was written in, like, a third-person perspective. I think it would have a totally different yes, outcome. It totally I don't think would. it would have been yeah. the bestseller. It would have been the bestseller that it would have been. Maybe, like, if that, this book was written, uh, you know, in the modern day, it, it could have hit that audience really well, being, oh, it's a very gritty depiction of a murder investigation mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. this sort of stuff and trial. Oh, yeah, it's excellent. It's like, you know... The Wire or or Homicide Life on the Street or Law and Order or something like that, right? Where it's very grittily depicted and, you know, excellent stuff, right? But I think this is the reason why I became a bestseller is because uh, Volker slash Traver knew that he had to, if he wanted this to sell or make money from it in any capacity, uh, you'd have to put it in this kind of voice in order yeah, totally. to to mute the darkness, I guess you could say. Not, mm-hmm. not like... Mm-hmm. Not cancel it out, but kind of mute it or at least mm-hmm. push it back and show like a shining light in the bacon of like this terrible crime. Uh, I was more referring to 
uh, Laura Mannion's ordeal. But I mean, also, I guess they still have to investigate a murder no matter what, right? Because justice must prevail and all that sort of stuff. You know, those grim topics are being discussed, but there's like a light around or halo around Beagler. Mm-hmm. He's our guide through this dark episode and he brings light into it and and life into mm-hmm. the into, into the world and it shows that despite these terrible things happening the world still goes on he still continues his career uh there's the townspeople still do what they do people go to uh, go to thunder bay uh for the tourism you know like the prisons still fill up the cops still patrol the streets the upper peninsula yeah. sportsmen go fishing hunting everything the world still revolves no matter what just because of a murder case mm-hmm. and while the murder case is the is this is the central storyline it's more about i think about the town itself yeah uh, that's what i that's that's what i feel mm-hmm. and i think i know we're going into like the the next the investigation mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of the evaluation here i still think it ties well to Beagler's as a principal in terms of how well how great a character he is that yeah. it, it reinforces uh, what Travers is going for in the narrative itself. Yes, I agree. So, and I, yeah. I, I'll just I'll move off my points on principle by re- reinforcing what you're saying. I feel like this reliable narrator, this unreliable narrator, did a bang up job of kind of dragging me along, luring me in, just like one of those fish that he was trying to catch. Because it was late in the story for me where I realized that I was locked into Paul's vision. And to me, you know, that's really surprising because, as you say, you're aware you're reading a first-person perspective. You know it's not a fly-on-the-wall episode. You are filtered. Mm -hmm. You are biased. I get it, right? But Trevor's characterization and his goodwill, I think they work so effectively on me in spite of myself Mm -hmm. that I'd only only allowed the consideration of Laura Mannion lying or Barney's innocence really late into the book. Now, I say the consideration of those factors. I should have, reading a crime story, been motivated to think about that stuff way earlier. But because I like this guy, Paul, so much, I just kind of went with it. And then I thought to myself, gee, we assume, we assume that he's guilty, Barney Quill, and that Laura, though she's a little dodgy, is telling the truth because of Paul's goodness and that, that seductive first-person point of view. But like a defense attorney, unless we ask, we don't actually know the truth, right? So we must have faith in goodness because that's the view of the world that we want to hold on to. Um, but but in terms of narrative, who can actually be sure? So it's it's mm. really it's an interesting bias that we're locked into here with this first person perspective, particularly. I know lots has been written. Uh, on unreliable narration in literary circles and whatnot, especially today as a postmodern feature, right, of literature. But I came yeah. up, I came up against my own traditional biases while I was reading this book, buddy, in a way that I hadn't before. I think, and whenever a book can encourage or force you into kind of breaking that fourth wall with your own perceptions, uh, I think you got a pretty decent and thoughtful thing working. Like. I guess I guess what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say is that I really like how the book made me aware of my own bias and willingness to find good in stories and in characters and I would encourage it to people I would recommend it to people if they want mm-hmm. that feeling in a read you know what I mean It's kind of a thing too where a little bit of a betrayal just a little tiny bit because that allows you to be duped just as much as yeah, Beagle absolutely uh, yeah. by the by the end result with like you know, with Mannion possibly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being guilty and, you know, Laura going along with it, right? Yeah. So 
and the and of course them fleeing with without pain. So mm-hmm. it, that that's that's the brilliance I think of like both the character. Uh, the principle and the narrative tying together in a way that really serves the novel uh-huh. and uh, allows you that that final moment to the seed is planted from the very beginning and then it just kind of bursts from the soil you know at the end mm-hmm. of the story it just tangles around you and mm-hmm. you can't do a thing right like yeah, and can. that's it yeah. and in a way like you're so kind of you're allowed to you're allowed to see through the trial and and believe in justice all the way through and yet yeah like you want you know Claude Dancer he's such an asshole <laughs> I don't want him to win because more so that he's just like the antagonist of Beagler and all that is good and right you know and we know that Dancer is also not 100% sincere in mm-hmm. what he's talking of course about not. he's just doing his job he's as a prosecutor job. Yep. and he is politically ambitious as well mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so in the end Everyone has the rug pulled out from underneath them uh, yeah. by the end of this story. And and to me, like, it's the fun. principle served that. And it is yes. fun, even though you're kind of put back into your cynical perspective by the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. No, it's right. I, I gave Paul Beagler as a principle because of the work he does on me as a reader and because of the work he does in the story and that well-rounded balance that he has. Like, he's an interesting guy. He's not perfect. He would not say he was perfect, I don't think. But I found him really yeah. engaging for this story, and I like the way Drivers writ- wrote him. Um, yeah, man, I went full marks for Beagler. I was at a five. Now, that's that's a bit rare for me, I know, but I, I think that mm. he's one of the real bright sparks of the story. Yeah, I have shared the same score as you. I mm-hmm. gave Paul Pauly Bigler a five. Great character, flawed, but wonderful personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great storyteller in terms Very of... Very much so, and, yeah. you know, and just like our beacon in the darkness of this, you know, grim tale, mm-hmm. you know, and bringing everything to life around him, surrounding him, and bringing the town to life and the story to life. Mission accomplished, yeah. uh, if that's what Travers was doing with Bigler. But I will say that... Travers probably has a bit of a handicap here if we're talking golf, for example, because darn it, like, y- you know that this is his own personality, and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. being effused through the passages and the narration that were given by Beagler, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, I'm not trying to say that it wasn't great writing, which it was, it's fantastic. And the fact that he can, any author, even though he's kind of technically doing a semi-autobiographical, you know, presentation of himself, the fact that, that he they can still convey this in the passages that that you know that Travers wrote uh, doesn't make a difference you know if they're pulling from their own crib notes he did a great job writing it so a mission accomplished again Mm -hmm. and if Beagler is representative of that northern Michigan citizen then I'd like to go visit some of these towns man because there's a real heart up there you know right let's move on to investigation I know we've already started it but uh, just just in the spirit of brevity here pushing along um, we feel the same way about about Beagler. So what did you make of the investigation? Now, obviously, we include the style and the way the story's told here, too. So I'm going to kind of give my breakdown of, like, the narrative uh, and what I sort of feel about each aspect of it. So we have the first half. It sets up the main conflict, the murder investigation, uh, and how the defense strategy is going to work. We meet the accused, learn all about the victim, Barney Quill, and, of course, the other victim, Laura Mannion. Uh or what were given to us by Polly anyways, because Polly doesn't really even know Lieutenant Mannion or Laura Mannion per se, as we come as we come to learn. 
Uh, and then we have all the witnesses to the crime introduced, uh, both of them again. Uh, then we have the second half of the story being the trial. And this can be considered kind of an elongated uh, but compelling climax mm-hmm. leading to the not guilty verdict. So we got the defense, the accused, the DA and his assistant DA, the witnesses. They all reached the end of their arcs in regard to the main conflict, which is the outcome of the trial. We then get a plot twist in the denouement that's, of course, set up in the very beginning, wherein we and Beagler experience the revelation that, Mannion, that the Mannions have robbed him of his pay and that Beagler may have just have liberated a guilty man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and but this can also be read as a climax because I, I think it, I think the reason why it could be considered a climax and the trial sequence could have been more of so like the second act going into the third act in a way is not whether Lieutenant Mannion did what he did or whether he's guilty, but it's more of, is the accused guilty or not? And even though the trial decides this in the written law as, you know, uh, in in the written law as uh, Polly talks about it with Mannion in the beginning of the story, it's the the unwritten law that is kind of, is, is where the answer comes from. And that is, you know, you know, the defense strategy that led to his acquittal was all in service of reaching the conclusion of the story. And and we are forced to ask, you know, did, you know, it tells us that Mannion actually killed Quill in a blind rage and was not entirely insane when he committed the crime. And this twist was planted at the very beginning. So it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's organic. Uh, and I think that's how it served the story in the mm-hmm. end is that we have the crime whether Mannion is guilty doesn't matter to Beagler, the defense attorney. It just matters that, you know, he has a case to defend and needs all the evidence to support his case, all the drama. And then he's, I think he starts to believe in, in Mannion and to Laura Mannion and their story. And he becomes emotionally involved in the story. We become emotionally involved in the story. We're cheering them along in the courtroom, waiting for justice. We're, we're meant to have contempt for the psychiatrist that they hired yeah. to, uh, to destroy Lieutenant Mannion. We're meant to, you know, uh, you know, look down upon the guy that uh, was basically used as a witness in, from the jail based on what Mannion said to him. Y- you know, like, we're meant to be on that sympathetic side, but in the end, the writing leads us to the inevitable conclusion that Mannion is indeed guilty, and that's really... And the, and the unwritten law of nature is triumphant because Mannion, as a civilized man, fails because he did not hold back his anger and let justice take over and punish Barney Quill for the rape of his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi. I thank you for your patience of me getting around to that. No, but not so. I, I think everything that I included was necessary to yeah. flesh everything out so that people get, get my perspective mm-hmm. on how the narrative is constructed and how, it's, how it serves the story so well from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have anything structurally to add to what you've said, so I won't. Um, I will just say that with respect to this investigation, I was never bored reading this. And there are some slower moments to the story, particularly as the Mm -hmm. dramatis personae are being, you know, unraveled and presented to you through scene and description. But I was never bored. Um, I felt that the courtroom really did come to life. Uh, and Trevor knows what he's talking about. You know, you, you really get that sense of his environmental understanding coming nicely into the story. I felt it made for a welcome change, Josh. Like I was kind of watching an old movie unreal before my eyes and I, I can't articulate it any mm-hmm. better than that, but I felt like mm-hmm. it was a welcoming, warm kind of story that 
it wasn't trying to frighten me towards or frighten me off characters too much. It was saying, here they are, take them at face value, but get to know them a little yeah. bit. And we don't... Make your decision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's patient with the reader. And I appreciated that. Um, as you said at the outset, I think here, Beagler speaks to you in a way that doesn't mystify further the justice system. It, it allows you to enter the courtroom and really look around, kind of like Harper Lee does in... Um, to kill a mockingbird, you get you kill get a mockingbird. Yeah, yeah, you get a similar sort of welcome in, and I appreciate that. Like we don't actually, we don't actually know the truth of what happens here uh, until the end, where that you know it, it's very large. Uh, it, it's um, yeah, it's pretty damn clear what he, what Mannion has done that he's got away with it. Chaos is won essentially over over uh, yeah. uh, organized life, but there was no in media res scene that we might have got in like uh, a third person narrative or like we did get in the Black Echo by Connolly, just to reference an author you said before. Like we don't actually know where the murders happen, how they work out. It's only through testimony. It's only through interviews. So we're only subject to the information as presented through the testimony of the characters, Paul's uh, supposition and reflections as well. So even at the end, when we presume that, yeah, Mannion totally played everybody, we're still not entirely sure. You know, all we know is that he's deceptive and he lies and he takes advantage of folk and Buster, Buster, Buster. Yeah, we can read a lot into that. But I, I Duke just wasn't lying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I just I don't know, dude, like the amount of blue collar wisdom that's kind of in the story. Uh, there's like philosophy in the, in the book and through the character's behavior that makes it nice to read. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you're being kind of like you're being spoken to. Um, by an experienced family member, like a grandfather or an auntie or a granny. Avuncular. Yeah, a very avuncular figure. Like, I'm not articulating the point very well. I understand that. But I love the conversational asides uh, in the narrative voice. Like, long stretches of the book are detailed and legal, yes. But there's, there's still story that maintains the feeling of being told a tale across, like, a kitchen table with a cup of tea in your hand. Like, you feel like you're listening to someone tell you a story that you want to hear and that's a really unique thing that's a very unique thing in the storytelling and i think we'd be remiss if we didn't give kudos to um if we didn't give kudos to traver for doing that it's like like with a wink almost you know the seriousness and the Hmm. the darkness of this murder case comes down to moral ambiguity rolling the dice trying your damn best to do a good job if it doesn't work it doesn't work fair play like maybe it's that michigan personality i've cited before i don't know but there's a real homespun Mm. wisdom in the book you get through the characters um yeah like you're talking about that you know the storytelling aspect of it the just and you get you're talking about you know like the the um homespun philosophy mm -hmm. the we get his perspectives on the justice system and other moral and philosophical matters and it feels so genuine you know, like you get this almost, it's, I guess I would describe it, mm-hmm. what you're saying mm-hmm. is it's an actual stream of consciousness that flows yeah, through the passages. Yeah, kind of, yeah. You know, like it doesn't, it doesn't feel pretentious. Uh, it feels very natural coming mm-hmm. from the narrator mm-hmm. and the writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and there are details, you know, of course, that they throw in there that, you know, that Travers includes regarding how the judiciary process of, of the Upper Peninsula or, you know, of any, I guess, uh, American legal apparatus you know, that grounds the realism of the story, sorry, grounds the story in realism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It creates a duality of fiction and nonfiction, uh, combining with that authorial voice that adds this emotional power and narrative momentum to all the proceedings. So there's like, 
an honesty to the writing that makes it palatable to the mind totally and yet still entertains yeah, still entertains right um i just want to share with you uh this little section which i think exemplifies what you're saying here this is when he's talking he's kind of sharing truth just wisdom and aside it's another one mm-hmm. of these little asides where he's talking about saving face this is from early in the book precisely i said this is when he's speaking to Mannion, spoken like a true soldier and a gentleman, Lieutenant, and thanks. But getting back to face, all of us, everywhere, all of the time, spend our waking hours saving face. This case itself is riddled with face. After all, one of the mute, unspoken reasons you're being prosecuted is to save face, community face. Mm-hmm. The biggest reason I hesitate to take your case, as things now stand, is my fear of losing it. That is merely a negative form of advanced face-saving. Face, face, face. Everybody has to save face, and whether they have to or not, everyone tries to. It's one of the basic compulsions of men. You know, like, I like that, man. It's just, it's fun to read this stuff. It's like, it's it's just cool. Simplistically tapping into the complex nature Mm -hmm. of human anxiety and human psychology. Yeah, for sure. All of our neuroses, you know, like that we have, every, every person out there has, are just as neurotic as you are. And so, you know, we, we all try to save face. We all try to make sure that we're putting on the good front and doing the right thing and making sure that our neighbors know that we are, mm-hmm. even though we say we don't care about them, but we actually do. We do. We really uh, it's do. just, uh, it's, it's, it's a merry-go-round mm-hmm. of uh, presumption that just goes on every day. <laughs> For sure, man. Well, I gave the investigation a four and a half. Uh, again, I'm not quite sure why I didn't give it full marks because I really liked the story, but there's there's obviously something that takes a shave off, but... It's it's tough to fault the investigation here. The only flaw that I can see or that I really noticed uh, beyond just one little nitpick was that compared to like I found the first half of the novel much stronger than the second half, but I personally love the investigatory stuff. Mm-hmm. I I love the description of the landscapes and that feeling of like an investigation coming together. And the trial sequence is usually anticipated as being sort of like the the climatic part of it of a case, right? Like think of any episode of Law and Order as the trial sequence, you know, or yeah, but that, I don't know if we've been going into like No, you're right, it is. But this is the book that yeah. informs those types of books and series. So you gotta exactly. look at it objectively. You've got to look at you it. You have to look at it ob- absolutely. But I will say that it's tough to do, you know. You know. It's a, yeah, the like it's integral to the story and it's no less compelling. You know, there is strong, accurate dialogue accurate in terms of the judicial process about what they would say in court and the, the, the jargon used um, but and how lawyers act and how they would react and how the judge makes their decisions and I just feel that and, and the dialogue of course of how people would act on the witness stand how people would behave outside you know you know like the how the juries were personified all that stuff was very well written uh, and there was even a sense of writing. He even Travers even gave atmosphere to the courtroom as well. Like you could feel that you're in the courtroom. Every every fiber of wood in that courtroom was ascribed to you, and not in a kind of a nauseating, a t- tedious way, but in a very sort of like you feel that you're sitting there. You can smell mm-hmm. the you can smell the pine. You know, like that's how it felt in certain circumstances. But there is compared to the first half, there is a little bit of. Uh, sometimes I felt that the, the court sequence could have been dragged out a little a little less like i think there was a bit there you know and i felt that the whole duke testimony for example um why would Mannion, who is already trying to dupe his defense attorney even mm-hmm. speak to duke about that kind of stuff yeah he seems like a yeah. professional soldier like why would he keep he would keep that to his chest yeah because then all point. of a sudden he has a split personality where he turns into like mm-hmm. 
buster or something, mm-hmm. you know, like immediately. And, and I found that was sort of like a bit of a, bit of a plot convenience. And we need, we needed that understand. in there so that the end of the story would kind of resonate with us. Yeah. You're, you're right. You're right. I kind of, I kind of wish that they kind of, so that does sort of set things up for that nuance in the end, but at the same time, over in oversight, like they could have skipped that part. I still, and still make the end, the entrance pretty strong. Right. But mm-hmm. I, I'm sure he could have thought, found another way to, you know, deliver that home. But that, that said, everything else is, is immaculate so, <laughs> in this story, in the storytelling and in the writing of the character. So I went, I didn't go for a full five. I went with four and a half like you did. All right. Well, we're seeing this eye to eye so far. Uh, how about the perpetrator? For me, the perpetrator was a tough one to score, a complicated category because mm. there were crimes, yes. but there were also characters who behave or who are presented as behaving criminally or kind of morally shady. You know, like, yeah, okay, you got Lieutenant Mannion who plays everybody and doesn't pay his bill. I mean, as mm-hmm. as written, he's jealous, he's pretty dull and unconvincing in his appeal to Paul for help. I mean, we never really properly understand why he's um, the way he is, do you know? Barney Quill yes. is, yeah, he's a villain type, but he's also he's also that dead man who can't speak or talk to his experiences. Uh, all we know, realistically, according to the facts, is that 30 minutes happened between the time that he called the cops, or sorry, there were 30 minutes to pass between the act, Laura Mannion getting home, and him actually calling the police. So something in those 30 minutes was enough for the reader to say he was planning and expecting Mannion to show up, thereby we can assume the guns exactly. The- so that's kind of how yeah. we, we judge him, but he's not he's not there himself. Claude Dancer, as you rightly said, becomes the antagonist of the trial when Mitch calls him in. Um, there's really nice introduction to Claude as well, like the way he's described. But then at the end of the story, he shakes his hand, well done, well done, and they go off and they, they just get mm-hmm. on with their lives. Yeah, it's like Kevin Spacey and Matthew McConaughey, you know, like... Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I know exactly where yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, and then we got Mitch Lodwick as well. There's good back and forth with Mitch in the early stages of the story and at a couple of other places, but I'm a bit disappointed at how gormless Mitch becomes when Claude Dancer comes into the scene. Like, yeah. they, they don't hey. conspire so much as he takes a total backseat and a wide-eyed juvenile approach to, who's this big celebrity? This is a guy that's running for high office, and the way he acts is like, oh, he completely defers to the greatness of other people when they come swooping in with cape, you know? It, it seems kind of silly the way Mitch is downplayed, like... He'd, and he also doesn't understand that Beagler's commitment is really in the defense, you know, for those few moments. Like, he keeps going back and being like, remember, remember, he's trying to get, he's trying to convince Beagler to, to just plead guilty to second degree so we can get it done before Christmas or get it done before yes. Thanksgiving or whatever it is. He doesn't understand yeah. that Paul actually wants to defend him and he thinks he's got a good shot at doing it, you know, like there is that little, yeah. there's that little appetite in there that Mitch doesn't see in Paul. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I found the perpetrator category quite tough to score here because we do have shady yes. characters, but there's all colors of shade. I went three and a half for the perpetrators. What did, okay. what did you do? Tell me how you saw it. I did a four. Okay. Um, you know, throughout the narrative, you know, the narrative, it depends on the perpetrator's verdict and the final action at the end of the story. The first accused an exonerated killer of Barney Quill Lieutenant, you know, like, so, sorry, I'll just start over again here. So, 
it, the narrative depends upon the ver- you know the, the verdict obviously of what happens to the perpetrator who is primarily Lieutenant Frederick Mannion. Mm-hmm. Then we have uh, so we have him as the perpetrator obviously because that is the focus of the story is whether or not he's he's innocent or guilty and how to prove him and how to prove either or. Now we have Barney Quill, uh, who is of course you know the rapist who was murdered, but he's still the victim in this case, right? Mannion is a bit of a cipher because even though like he's almost a MacGuffin that drives a story and everything revolves around him, but we are left in suspenseful doubt throughout the story whether Mannion is innocent or not because there's an ambiguity to how Beagler is playing it despite him being pulled into it as we are. Mm -hmm. But Travers' writing still makes me feel that there is still that reasonable doubt as there should be on whether he is innocent or Mm -hmm. guilty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because of the first-person narrator, we never enter Mannion's headspace, and this is a brilliant choice because we don't really get into the accused of any trial's headspace, right? Because that's not the purpose of a trial with a defense and a prosecution. They're each vying to present the stronger case. But this does not make for an exciting perpetrator either. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there's an ambiguity, murkiness to the presentation of Mannion as a villain despite the reveal at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then we have, of course, that quote-unquote, buster confirmation from Lemon, George Lemon, that we realize, you know, that we have been had the entire time. And maybe a reread will reveal nuances I might have missed. I, I don't know. Probably a book I would probably reread again. Definitely recommend to others to read it. That's for darn oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but Mannion, as a villain, he's not really remarkable. And perhaps that's the point. You know, th- Barney Quill, yeah, the maybe, victim... maybe is instead made to be sort of the perpetrator of this tale. Yeah. And while we have Laura's description of his brutal, cruel, arrogant nature during the assault, we only have other people paint a picture of who this victim slash rapist was. You know, we know he was married. We know he had a daughter. Both these perpetrators are, you know, they're a bit disorienting in terms of our moral compass because of how average they seem to be despite you know their personalities yeah. and what's revealed to us yeah you know so i i give it four out of five simply because the structure of the story doesn't let us explore them as characters beyond the hearsay of what the author gives us however they do enrich the story of which they you know they do enrich the story with how they are written yeah so yeah and i think you're right buddy i think that th- the 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 mundane features of the perpetrators are there to remind us that you know this is real crime crime isn't about the supervillain who we see no. in the comic books or who we read about in the pulps you know crime yeah. is boring people many of whom die slippery gross deaths and they're never around to talk about themselves after the case so yeah, I think you're right. You're, you're definitely onto something. So, okay, you're, you're a shade above me on that, but I think we're saying similar things. In terms of the environment of the story, I loved being in this part of the world, the Upper mm. Peninsula in Michigan, Iron Bay, the Cliffs, uh, Iron Cliffs County Jail, uh, Chippewa, even, you know, Thunder Bay itself, the crime scene at the inn. Legend lives on from the <laughs> That's Chippewa right, on yeah. down. <laughs> uh, good Gordon Lightfoot song there. Gordon Lightfoot, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And of course, we're near Superior, right? Are, so yeah. that's like the big the Iron Bay and, you know, just like the, the connection with like, you know, because Edmund Fitzgerald, which was the ship that sunk in Lake Superior mm. years after this book was published. Yeah. Um, One of many. It, it was, it, it, yeah, it was like a freight ship, right? Wasn't it like a steel? They're mm-hmm. carrying steel or something mm-hmm. or ore or something. I, f- I forgot what it was. It was a freighter anyway. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's some nice descriptions of the leafy towns and the natural kind of width of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. A lot of setting is conjured in the reader's mind from previous events and the testimony, um, which which we, we rely on the, the speakers in the courtroom to kind of share for us, right? Like, well, we, we, we never really get to the road where Laura Mannion was forced into, you know, her acts or not, sorry, where the assault took place. And because of that, it's only through the testimonies that we get some of these environments described for us. But the courtroom where so much action in the second half of the story takes place is really, really nicely described. Uh, not overdone, though. Like, I feel like once it's done, Travers expects us to know it, remember it, and stick with it and keep going, you know? Mm. I felt the environs worked for the story, uh, and they really helped to reinforce that lifestyle choice by Paul Beagler. So, yeah, I, I went for a four. Um, I, I don't think that there was... I don't think there was a great attempt to romanticize the environment like other writers might have done or no. maybe even writers have done more nicely but i felt like this was certainly serviceable plus so my good faith brings it up to a four maybe a little generous but i went with a four because i like being in this part of the world yeah I, on the outset i was like i was very impressed at the description especially like in a courtroom uh, something labeled a courtroom thriller That's the description right. was yeah. almost hemingway-esque in its simplicity and how it was presented to us and remind me also a little bit of there was vestiges of even conrad in here there's parts that reminded me of heart of darkness just in how he was portraying mm. nature well, it was really not as poetic as that of course but no. there was it was evocative for, for me in that respect um i wavered so I, initially i wanted to give it like a hot the highest mark but because it's just served the story so well but looking at it from a critical point of view it doesn't reach you know the poetic grandeur of you know of some others that we've done and or that exist out there but it was more as you said more than serviceable for the story it's the you know the up the upper peninsula is excellently rendered through bigler's eyes at you know page after page we can smell the urine in the county jail mm -hmm. bask in the solitude of a bigler fishing recess visualize every corner of the courtroom have almost tactile familiarity with the town of thunder bay the inn the bar its surroundings even though the testimonies of, of, you know, of Laura Mannion, whose terrifying experience is portrayed by the character and author in a matter-of-fact sort of way, the strength of the dialogue that, that he, Ed Travers gives her and the writing conveys us to every scrub of bush, every wood trail, every swinging gate, every struggle in the car, you know, like we feel that. Mm -hmm. He brings emotion and presence to his dialogue, which brings to the environs to me as well in the description of the mood of the story, you know, mm, and point. meshing the natural surroundings of his story to that of his characters, you know, whether it's a sun shining through the courthouse windows and other descriptions, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's plain presentation, yeah, I think is what really hits, you know, fits the bill. So not full marks, but I was also at a four for the environs. All right, cool. Well, then we get to our last category, which is of course the secondary, mm -hmm. secondary players uh, or the supporting cast, if you prefer anything that starts with an S and uh, we've got an awful lot here we could pick from. Um, oh, we, we don't yeah. need to cite them all, but I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about some of them before we uh, say goodbye here. Sheriff Max Battisfor, interesting character. Laura Mannion. Yeah, sorry, you want to say something about Sheriff? In, uh, not, I, no, no, not, no. Okay. I mean, all right. I, I liked how he wasn't antagonistic to Bigler, like you would see in some mm -hmm. 
pr- like going forward some further legal dramas how like the the sheriff they want to make their case and nail the guy but they're more than happy to let paul do his thing as well like they respect the system that's exactly and right I, yeah even though it's mm-hmm. kind of even though like people would find this uh, I, I guess it's more, they, people would have a more of a cynical eye towards this sort of behavior like what's really going on behind the scenes between those two or whatever what kind of deal do they have mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. but no it's just people in a small town just you know just doing their jobs, doing their thing, doing their duties. There's politics involved, yes, but oh, yeah. nothing that's that's big stakes in a, in a simple murder case, mm-hmm. right? So it's not, not about, like, you know, police corruption or, you know, there's not a local gangland, so to speak. We don't. We just have, like, little miscreants up in the Upper Peninsula, right? No big fishes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. No, it's so, all in the lakes you know, and rivers. So, so all members of the judiciary, you know, you have the police and you have the, le- the legislators, you know, they all work together to get the job done and go home at the end of the day and then, Enjoy a nice cold beer, or or head up to the lake for some fishing mm-hmm. or some shooting, right? So yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about, and the characters conveyed that. Uh, I want to hold off on Mary Pallant. I want to talk about her right at the very end. Uh, Laura Mannion, you already said this, you know, how she's portrayed as a victim, not just because of the rape, but also of her reputation. I think we need to uh, access that point. You know, sympathy is drawn as she's an, a lonely army wife. She's a slippery fish, though, because she likes attention and she is conveyed to readers as a person who could very possibly have affairs, you know, and could cheat and whatever. Uh, the seed of doubt is put into our minds about her morality, but it's a thematic red herring, kind of, because ultimately, and cleverly, I guess, the story's presentation of Laura succeeds in holding a mirror up to ourselves in how and who we judge, you know? It's not always a pleasant reflection of, of, of what we do with characters like her. Here's a hot take. Is Laura Mannion kind of a subversion of the femme fatale? Hmm. A subversion or or just an ev- evolution? Sort of, in a way, yeah. I mean, the femme fatale, I mean, the mm-hmm. spider woman mm-hmm. is the one that lures the men in, right? But if you have a morally complex femme fatale... And then you also include the idea, you know, of her being raped and which is, you know, obviously a crime and, and, you know, obviously she didn't deserve it, you know, even though, you know, she might have been a bit of a flirt and a bit of a tease. At the same time, is the story playing with the, because in the end, she sort of gets vilified with the reveal at the end with Mannion and how much she was in on it. And even so, like the way that Beagler, uh, sorry, that um, Travers presents her. Remember when we first, when they first see Laura Mannion in person, it's almost like she's appearing as a, uh, an incognito 50s movie star, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like you have like, you know, like with the, dark the shawl, the shawl, you know, yeah. the dark, gla- the big dark glasses and the shawl over her head or what, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And big, and the little dog is, and the, the, and the little, little dog, dog as well. Yeah, I was so. just about to say that. Plus Beagler also says on a couple of occasions, uh, publicly or sorry, um, privately to us as readers, but also to her, that she's got to wear a corset or something to shape that body down for the courtroom. Because if she doesn't take the curves away, then that's going to promote the idea that she's not just a flirt, but she is over-sexual. And, you know, I hate that. I hate that misogynist view I of things. But I think that there's... But it existed. It existed. Absolutely right. Now... Um, even even on the uh, women in yeah. the jury, yeah. they would oh, see yeah. that yeah. direction, yeah. right? Because these would be the one that go home, and the, these are like the you know the strong Christian women, you know, you know, strong Christian women with those fundamental values and stuff yeah. about purity and about chastity and all this, you know, and what a good housewife was. So totally, we were still in the 1950s here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting, interesting character, and I think accomplishes a lot in the investigation. 
Parnell McCarthy, you know, I, I've written down a lot about him and then I scrapped a lot of it out because the, the, the distillate that's left after the experiment with Parnell, Matt, for me, he's a great Tom to Beagler's Huck. That's the way I yeah. look at it. He's a, he's a great <laughs> friend, a fun, crafty accomplice. He's a very wise and supportive figure as well. He's a lot of fun in the story to co-pilot. And I'll just read a short section about him or from him. This comes later in the book, uh, Parnell's Wisdom. He's got a lot of it. Parnell also stared at the lake. The lack of knowledge of people, our lack of human communication, one with the other, may be the big trouble with this old world, Parnell said soberly. For lack of it, our world seems to be running down and dying. We now seem fatally bent on communicating only with robot missiles loaded with cargoes of hate and ruin instead of with the human heart and its pent cargo of love. Parnell still gazed morosely out over the lake. And now, it seems, boy, almost as though a despairing god or nature or fate, call it what you will, has finally challenged mankind to open up its heart or perish. You know, I like that. It's, it's, pro- that, it's prophetic wisdom, but yeah. you, could, you, could replace, you could replace the robot missiles with social media, you know, and you've still got the, a very, yeah. again, it's humanist wisdom coming through this book, right? Absolutely. Very Irish uh, human mm-hmm. wisdom, too. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, you can just picture that little of an accent saying that, you know, out loud, <laughs> yeah. you know, you can you can really hear it. Mm. Yeah, that's the Huck Finn thing is really cool. I'll be a little more geeky because of my own references. But I would say, like, Parnell is Foggy Nelson to Beagler's Matt Murdock Daredevil, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good, too. Yeah. yeah. What, what about Judge Weaver? How do you feel about Judge? Love the Judge Weaver. Uh, Great character. Yeah. I loved every moment of him. He was great. He was fair in the courtroom. Mm. Uh, behind the scenes with Beagler, he was also great. I love every scene with him and Beagler in the, in the office. Like In the courtroom, he was impartial, but you could tell instantly that there was a chemistry between the two characters, mm-hmm. it, 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 between the doors. Like they were, they, they were similar men, yeah. and, and they all want to see, you, you know, they want to make sure that justice is done right, right, and they yeah. want to give Mannion a yeah. chance, if that is the case, if they can prove their case. But it's also, I think in terms of Weaver too, it's not only is he a judge who doesn't really have a lot of, I like the fact that he's kind of like, much like Maida, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. he loves the murder That's trial. That's true. He, he finds them fascinating yeah. and, and he likes taking them on because they're challenging in his own way. So he's a bit of a sportsman when it comes to the legal profession. <laughs> yeah. So overall, a very fun character, but also a consummate professional uh, behind the bench. Yeah. And he's he's also kind of um, Maida. You talk about Maida, just just maybe to echo something about her. Thelma, Thelma Ritter's character in Rear Window, you know, like that's her. Isn't it? Oh, oh yeah. That's her, man. hundred percent. Like, and there's a lot of that. I was charm. surprised that Thelma yeah. Ritter played her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll see. You'll see how she's yeah. represented in the film. Because because Thelma Ritter is known for roles like that, right? Yeah, so. totally. Then we got Sulo, really colorful character, the deputy sheriff who works in yeah. as the guard. You know, he's he's really, really cool, really cool guy. He becomes a fun little friend uh, as like well him. along the way, and he's nice to the prisoners as yeah. well. You know, I like that. I like that. Yeah. You know, humanity to the prisoners because yeah. you know innocent until proven guilty, right? Because they're in the county jail under under charges. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, uh, absolutely. Uh, who, who was your favorite witness? Like the most interesting witness? I think it, it's got to be Paquette, obviously. Paquette, yeah. Alphonse Paquette was a great witness. Uh, I did like the scene with Doctor Smith too. Um, I really liked. Smith, yeah, Doctor Smith was kind of the you know he was a prosecution's doctor who actually had very little to do as such, but. No, sorry. Um, he's not the prosecution. Harcourt doctor. was the prosecution. Yes, thank you. He's a defense doctor. Yes, he's, he's the one, he's the, the young the guy, army guy that they the young had. guy that came in. He said yeah. something really cool, a really insightful truth about human behavior. Uh, 
Dr. Smith looked thoughtfully out at the lake. We must remember that for untold millennium in the long history of the human race, something very much like rape was probably the normal order of the relations between the sexes. Anthropologically speaking, it was only yesterday that men ceased to club and ravish on the spot any female that attracted mm-hmm. their passing whim. You know, like I felt I that, that passage. And then, of course, any sort of inflation is is burst when you get Paul responding. Yes, I suppose, doctor. I said, life must have been one merry chase in those relaxed and informal old times. Nice day, madam. I love you madly. Conk. Oopsie daisy, my little penguin. <laughs> like, I like the moments with Smith. The, the moment with Trembath was good as well. He seemed like a no-nonsense sort of dude. But yeah, in answer to your question, probably Paquette. Best best witness moment because it was so because yeah. it was important your go was good too yes that's true yeah, that's a good one yeah yeah i loved how he was you know you could tell that the pro he was a great witness for the prosecution mm-hmm. but he was also part impartial in the courtroom and when he realized you know that i he he answered the defense's question yeah. there was no hesitation in his answers like if he, if he knew that his answer supported the defense damn it what can he do right. he has to give a straight yeah. answer no matter what no matter what he feels about the situation <coughs> Can I can I ask you, buddy, uh, w- what you thought now of, of Mary Pallant? Because there's a lot of her story that is left out of the court. Yet it motivates yeah. it motivates Beagler. It motivates so the much. reader. Reader, like we've got a couple of intimate scenes with her, and the story ends on the suggestion that Parnell has set Paul up with her for dinner and for future romance. Yeah, like it's all a bit trite. It's all about. <laughs> a bit pat at the end for me, but I suppose the goodness of Paul is kind of like exposed to her and he learns that there's more to judging careful uh, or kind of cautious women than he first believes. Like maybe there's a lesson in that for him, but can we just talk for a moment before we close shop here on the book about Mary's importance a little and how you saw it? Because for me, there were some gaps there. What were your impressions of Mary uh, as a, a figure at the Thunder Bay Inn or indeed as a romantic liaison? So when I talked about earlier about in this category, we talked about, you know, the idea of the femme fatale and, um, you know, the idea of like, is Laura Mannion the subversion of that trope, right? So in a way, there's a, Palantomy is kind of suggested as sort of a femme fatale character because what is her relation to Quill? And maybe, you know, the fact that she wanted to hush everything up well, we understand for logical reasons why she wanted to have her employer, you know, her employees not talk about the case and everything like that. There was an air of her like almost interfering with the investigation to protect herself and her inherit and I guess her taking over the business. Yeah. And there was sort of like this moral ambiguity to her character, but she was just playing it safe because of her own personal history. And because we mm, see the, yeah, the yeah, you know her true. through the lens of Beagler, uh, we get that biased version way of we share his biased opinions of her until, of course, you know, he doesn't when, when he finally talks to her face to face and meets with her, you know, on her on their own terms together. He realizes there's nothing to do with the case. You know, this is this whole separate thing where he understands where she's coming from. And um, so they work together in, in, that, in that respect. So I found her a bit inscrutable. You don't really get in. You don't get into her headspace. Obviously, you only get what Beagler tells of her, tells of us. But. To me, he's vindicated her even by the end of the story. Mm-hmm. So even though there's a lot of BS regarding Mannion in the end, at least he got duped, yeah, and he lost money. Yeah. But he, A, he's going to the governor's house, and and B, mm-hmm. you know, he also has a future romantic uh, yeah, entanglement true, yeah. Uh, yeah. possibly awaiting him, right? So 
not really necessary in terms of what the story and the narrative was about. It could have been left out, and Mary Plant could have gone her separate ways. Well, yeah, but, but is it bloat? Is it bloat in the story? Because this is where I was coming down on re- it with secondary characters. Is it too much? Nah, I, no? I don't think so. Because if you compare her to Laura Mannion, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's maybe it, I wouldn't call it bloat because maybe there's an. Um, I suppose, a thematic reasoning why you have these two female characters, right? You have Mary Pallant, who is sus, as they say these days, mm-hmm. all the way, uh, mostly all the way through the novel until near the end. And then you have Laura Mannion, who is the, you know, the victim of the whole circ- of the circumstance, and then how she is sort of shady in the end as well. And even though despite something terrible happened to her, it doesn't seem like it phases her psychologically enough, right. uh, you, you know, you know, on how we see through Beagler's eyes, of course, we don't know what she's thinking, obviously, it's a whole different story, mm-hmm. but she goes along with her husband's story, and maybe understandably, you know, because obviously she was, if, you know, that experience terribly traumatizing, no sure, matter yeah. what, and so, and so therefore, you know, that could have jaded her, and, and, you know, like saying, like, we deserve to win this, my husband does not deserve to be, you know, in prison for the rest of his life for this terrible thing that happened to me. So you understand where she's coming from, but she also knows how to play the play, play to the front row, obviously, you know? So there's a, there's definitely a comparison, like almost like that Madonna horror dichotomy, mm-hmm. I suppose. That's an interesting, yeah, yeah. interesting way of looking at it. Very, very vaguely. That, yes, that I understand. Yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah. yeah. It's not underlined. I don't, I don't want to impose any, I don't want to underline or impose mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm, I'm putting... Laura in the, in the category of like, or either in those categories, no, but no, when it's far more complex than that, obviously, very much so. Um, well, I went for a four and a half with my secondary characters. I, I feel like there's enough in here, particularly Parnell himself, to go to go five. Judge Weaver five. Uh, the, the complexity of Laura Mannion, like it's all there. But Paquette, but yeah. I Paquette, but yeah, and that I, I just feel like there was something missing with Palan's character. It was a bit shoehorned in the romantic affiliation at the end. I, I just maybe that's not worth taking a half mark off. But I did question how bloated the addition was. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a small point anyway. Let's be honest. It's a half point. I went four and a half for secondary characters, which brings me to a total of twenty one point five. Really, really enjoyed this book. It was refreshing. It was so lovely to read something with warmth and humor of this dark genre. The the fact that it is it, it's the first of its you know, subgenre. I really like that too. I think we've done a good service reading this one today. Um, you get the last word, buddy, on Anatomy of a Murder. So what was your score for secondary? So ta- I was stuck between two scores, four and a half or five. And I went with four and a half for the same reasons that, 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 that unsurprisingly you did. Or surprisingly, I don't know <laughs> what, what you think about it. But yeah, like, Dickensian is an overused word in this category, <laughs> yes, but it it's is. more than fitting yes, for is. anatomy of a murder. But it's not Dickensian enough where like there's caricatures being portrayed here. Some at, at some points, mm-hmm. we get a very why we get, uh, you know, any procedural is going to present us with a cast of characters that are stripped down essentially as plot devices. Mm-hmm. But the dialogue and character, and again that word humanity that are bestowed upon these characters by Travers, it they expertly fulfill their roles in the story. And it draws you again emotionally into the proceedings that transcends this these types of procedurals, these courtroom dramas. So Dickensian is a word I use, yes, but ultimately, you know, like all the categories are really high for anatomy of a murder. 
not to brag, but I think we've done a good job creating our categories for the reviewing of mystery novels, particularly. We, we review the principle, we review the narrative and the writing, we review, uh, you know, the perpetrators, we talk about the environs, the atmospheric of the writing, and we talked, of course, about the supporting cast. And all of those things are integral of, of creating a great reading and immersive experience of something of this genre. And also of, I suppose, of most novels, mm, I suppose, yeah. but particularly the crime, the crime drama, the mystery genre. I think we've done a good job of encapsulating that with our breakdowns and the high marks that Anatomy of Murder is getting is 100% justified. The sheer intellectualism of the story combined with that writing, combined with that human touch that Travers gives from his own experiences or just him as his own hidden genius as a, as a semi-retired lawyer turned writer, you know? So, yeah. Uh, the Mary Pallant thing was my only real thing, was that it's an integral part of the story. That character was a little too inscrutable for me, and I did find the romance a little, little, little ham-fisted, or at least the suggestion of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just simply, like, you just gotta give your reader a happy ending after Mannion gets away. Hey, Bigler gets the state house, and he also gets, you know, a cute girl, so. There yeah, you go. that's it, yeah. Pat, right, Pat. Pat, yeah. So four and a half for the sporting characters. And that brings you to a 22 overall. So we are nearly identical with this one. Um, we both agree it's a great book. And I don't think you've got to be a huge fan of the crime genre to enjoy it. There's a lot of warmth and humanity in this book. It's, it's a good people story. So, yeah, really fun. Glad we did this one. Really glad we did this one. Um, Anatomy yeah, of a Murder. Good choice. It's a recommendation from us here at Lighten the Pipes. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. We will see you soon. We've got another LTP Noir coming up. Uh, Josh has got that little surprise that he uh, he teased at the beginning of our episode. As always, you can find us on the socials, particularly email at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com or our Instagram feed. Look us up there, and uh, we'd love to communicate with you. Thanks for all your support. Happy reading, and we'll see you back here very soon indeed. Take care. <laughs>